The scripture today is from Ruth, and it's Ruth 2, 4 through 20. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers. And he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephath of barley. And she took it up, and she went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Vicki. Good morning. Good to see so many of you this morning. Uh, This is an exciting uh, Sunday for uh, some of you, probably a scary Sunday, maybe even a little bit of sadness uh, as children grow up and and start to leave, uh, but we rejoice in God's faithfulness towards us and towards them. We continue this morning in a series in the book of Ruth. Uh, we've been looking at this book for a few weeks now. We'll continue to do so until about the middle of June. Uh, and we're just we're looking at what it looks like to live in a crazy time. It's a crazy time we're living in, isn't it? Uh, it's similar to the time in which these events took place and the time when the judges ruled, when there was just an unbelievable amount of political uncertainty and chaos, when the world seemed to be coming off its hinges, and and in many ways, the world today seems to be the same. 
And what we've said is, is that when you find yourself in a time like that, what you can't be so concerned about is the big picture. What you need to do is look right in front of you and see the people that God has placed in your life. And you just put yourself to the steady, quiet work of love because that's the way the world moves. That's, that's the way you change the world is to engage in the act of chesed love towards others. And so this morning we look and we see that really this needs to be expanded beyond just how we relate to one another to what it means for us to be a community of people who are all doing this together because uh, what the Bible would very clearly teach us is that you can't, you can't live the Christian life all by yourself. You can't. For one, it's just too hard. It's, it's just too, it's too lonely. I mean, even if you go to a Christian school, sometimes it's too lonely to live the Christian life all by yourself. And so the Bible speaks to a community and not just to individuals. Uh, are you aware that in the Bible, when you read the word you, most of the time the word you, because we're Westerners and we're, you know, we're Americans, we read the word you and we assume that it's an individual you, that it's speaking to me, my person, me. But most of the time in the Bible, when you come across the word you, when God is commanding you, most of the time that's a plural you and not a singular you. Because the Bible's addressed to a community of faith. Because we live as Christians in community. I mean, there is, there's no such thing as online worship, okay? You staring at your computer in the dark of your living room. There, there is no such thing. Listening to a sermon in your car is not the same as being in the room. Now, I'm grateful for Joe's work to get the stuff on the app, but it's, it's just not the same. There are two completely different experiences, and we need to be... We need to be aware of that. And so we're, we're talking about community. Now, let me, Brandon stole my thunder a little bit, but let me, let me just come back to the graduates for just a minute and to the, to the families of graduates and to us as a, a people sending these graduates. Uh, the, the statistics are actually that 80% of kids raised in the church will leave the faith by the time they graduate college. Let that sink into you for just a minute, sober you. 80%. By the way, we had 10 students up here. That's eight out of 10. Because the cultural forces are just so great. Uh, and because what happens is, is they, they go and they lose the moorings of their, of their community of faith and go and, and live, you know, try to live without that in college. And so uh, that should sober us. It should cause us to pray for these families, pray for these kids. We've been learning about prayer cards. I want to encourage you. We didn't get all their names, uh, but you can get them from Brandon. Get all their names, make a class of 2017 prayer card, and pray those kids through college for the next four years. And all the parents said... All the parents of those kids, you know, pray them through college. And then students, if you're going, let me just tell you, I, Brandon already said it, but the most important thing, the most important thing you can do when you go off to school, even if you're going to Polk across the lake, is to find a Christian community. Let me say it this starkly to you. If you do, you have a good chance to keep the faith. If you don't, you won't. It's that simple. And by the way, this is why community groups and other small group settings are so important to us as a church, uh, because we believe you can't do Christianity all by yourself. You need, you need a group of people that you're living with. But here's the thing. Let me, you not only need this person here and this person here and, and friends in different spheres. You need, uh, you need, I think the Bible speaks to this, you need a, a group of people that you are connected to who are also all connected to one another. And that's exactly what you see uh, happening in the text. Boaz's strategy for loving Ruth is not just to love Ruth, but to create around Ruth a community of Hesed love because uh, he knew that's what she ultimately needed. So this part of Ruth is really about community. It's not just a story of this girl, Ruth, or of this amazing man, Boaz. It really is a story of how God's love for his people, in this instance, created a chain reaction of love within a community that changed the course of history forever. 
And it's the same thing that God could do among us as well. So that's our subject. What does it mean for us to be a, a community of chesed love? And we want to just see these four things. They're there in your outline, and you can see them there. Uh, we wanna, I want to go along these four headings. We want to look at the directions for becoming a, a community of love. Uh, the source, which is, is the trinity, the eternal community of love. The, the example, which is Boaz himself here, the hero that enters the story here. And then I just want to ask, well, then what's the starting place? Where do you begin? How do you, how do you take the first small step towards this? So the directions, the source, the example, and the starting place for becoming the kind of community we see Boaz in his loving of Ruth creating here in Ruth chapter 2. So let's begin, okay? First with the directions. And what I want you to notice is, is that as we engage this part of the text here in Ruth 2, Boaz, you may or may not be aware, but he is not coming up with all of this on his own. Uh, these are not his ideas. He is taking his cues from God. Boaz was, was being guided by the law of God in his kindness towards Ruth. Uh, the, the law of Moses, which God gave to the people of Israel. And this is important to note because you want to see here that God has legislated the way that we are to live toward one another because he knows the condition of our hearts. He knows that we don't need to be encouraged towards selfishness. Right? Feeling alienated and distant from one another is the weeds Love and intimacy with one another are the flowers, and you have to cultivate, you have to fight, you have to work hard for the one and, and not the other. The other just grows naturally. You know, you just walk outside and there it is, and you've done nothing, and that's kind of the point. We need directions for how to live together as a people, and that's the law. That's part of the reason the law was given to God's people and to God's people today, to us. The law teaches us what God is like. It also teaches us how we're different from him and how we can rightly be related to him and in becoming rightly related to him, how we can be rightly related to one another because things are all out of sorts. And so you have in the Old Testament the two tablets of the law, uh, the first tablet being the instructions about how to uh, have a relationship that is proper with God himself, the second concerning our relationships with one another because the Bible always connects those two things. The way you treat other people always carries implications for what your relationship with God is like. You really, you really live out and, and exemplify the vertical dim, you know, dimensions of the faith horizontally as you, as you work these things out in relationship with other people. And at the center of the law, at the very center of the law is a concept, is the idea of righteousness or justice. And so the law really thematically is just about this one thing. It's about this idea of righteousness or, or justice. Those two words go together. Now, a seminary professor of mine uh, summed up the whole uh, thing uh, using these words. He said, he summed up the law this way. He said, a righteous person is someone who, get this right, okay? A righteous person is someone who disadvantages himself for the sake of the community. An unrighteous person is a person who advantages himself at the expense of the community. Okay, let me say that again, because this is important. So a righteous person is the one who disadvantages himself for the sake of the rest of the community, whereas an unrighteous person is a person who actually works to advantage himself at the expense of everybody else in the community. And I've never been able to shake that. It was 15 years ago that I heard that. 20 years ago, gosh, I don't even know how long, something like that, somewhere in between there. And I've never really been able to shake it. I remember the classroom I was sitting in, I remember exactly where in the room I was sitting because it landed so heavily on me at the moment. 
And I hope it does for you this morning. It was my prayer this morning. Let this land on all of us that way. Uh, and that's what the law is supposed to do, by the way. But I was just so struck because I immediately, I immediately began to think of the way that I drove my car in traffic and the way that I, you know, a thousand different ways that I related to people and all the ways that I really saw how I was guilty of trying to take, you know, take advantage of everyone else for my own gain. And so think about it for a minute. The essence of the law demands that you always be disadvantaging yourself for the sake of meeting the needs of others. That you always be putting other people before yourself. Putting others first. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament puts it, consider others better than yourselves. What he really means there is think about others before you think about yourself chronologically. Make meeting their needs more important than meeting your needs. Put more energy into taking care of other people than you just worrying about you. Because this is the way that God lives towards you. But what we have to confess this morning is that it goes against everything that's in us, doesn't it? I mean, we feel how hard, I mean, it goes against everything that, that really is ingrained in us. All of the evidence points to the fact that our default mode is just the opposite, that we are always advantaging ourselves at the expense of others. And it happens in very subtle ways. I mean, it happens in very big ways, but also in very small ways. I remember a movie, maybe the first time I really kind of felt this in my own life. I was a teenager, and I went to this movie, saw this movie about two friends and, uh, you know, it's a typical teenager drama, uh, but it, it gripped me because I was, you know, 16, 17 at the time. But these two friends and one of them, one of them gets the opportunity to climb into a higher social circle at the school. The cool kids invite him to kind of come into their circle. But in order to do it, he has to play a cruel, socially damaging practical joke uh, on his lifelong friend. And, and he does it. And I just remember being, like, so outraged. Uh, but it was because every teenager who's ever tried to navigate high school has felt the pain of that. Of what, it, what it's like for a friend to take advantage of your friendship for the sake of just getting a better offer. And oh, that we left that kind of behavior to our high school days. But we don't, do we? Alas, it follows us throughout all of our life, the way we use one another. Instead of loving one another and then bail when a better opportunity comes along. So the law then is God's directions for proactively curbing this unrighteousness that is so inherent to us by commanding a certain relational ethic between us. It, it's God laying tracks for us to, to, to you know, follow along on as we live life together. Uh, and there are two examples of this in the text. There are really two. There's probably more, but I just want to call out two. Two examples of where you see the law of God really dictating what, what's happening here. The first is what's called the law of gleaning. And, and if you want to look, you can take little notes in Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. And in Deuteronomy uh, 24, 19 through 22, you have this law that's given to the people. It's called the law of gleaning. Uh, and, it, and it goes something like this. Ruth and Naomi are destitute. Uh, they've come back to Bethlehem. They have no access to land. So as you might imagine, in an agrarian society, because they have no access to the land, they have no way to get food. They literally have no way to get food. There's not a supermarket they can down, down the road. And even if there was, they don't have any money to buy any food. And so in the law, there was provision that prohibited landowners from harvesting the whole of their crop. Uh, they, the, the law commanded uh, landowners to do this, and they were being commanded by the rightful landowner, God himself, to intentionally leave the corners of their fields for the poor and for foreigners like Ruth. 
And so they could, and, and, and then the, the people in need could come and they could harvest their own food to eat from what was left over. So I want you to get, I want you to get an idea. It's so radical that we just f- fly by this. And by the way, Israel just kind of flew by it too and never really implemented a lot of the stuff that God gave them. Um, but I want you to see what, what, what God is doing here. Landowners had to intentionally operate at 80% efficiency for the sake of caring for members in the communities who had no other way of providing for themselves. And by the way, then they were supposed to tithe 10% of the 80% over top of that, which also helped to care for the poor. They were to disadvantage themselves, literally, to cut their profits short. Because there was a more important thing they were to be doing, and that was to take care of those in the community that had no way of providing for themselves. Now, you can imagine some greedy landowners would have struck the efforts of the gleaners by ridicule or by, by turning away from abuse from the other reapers or by outright expulsion. And, and you feel from Boaz here his concern for Ruth and Naomi's concern for Ruth because what she's doing is, is very dangerous. There were cruel, harsh landowners who didn't want to have the poor come and do this, and so they'd make it so difficult that the poor wouldn't come, and then they could say, well, the poor didn't come, so I guess we can go ahead and bring the other part of the harvest in. You see how this works? These landowners wanted to maximize their profits at the expense of the poor in the community to whom the law gave the right. Hear me. The law gave the right to the poor members of the community to glean from the leftovers after harvest. They were unrighteous men, not Boaz. Boaz is a righteous man. And he was generous. But the other is, not only this law of gleaning, but the other is this idea of a redeemer. Now, not much here because we're going to come back to this. It's going to become important as the story goes along. But notice... At the very end of the passage, when Naomi realized whose field Ruth had been working in, uh, she becomes excited. She's excited because she sees the Lord is providing for them, but she's also excited because of the implication of who Boaz is. She says, this man is a close relative of ours, verse 20, one of our redeemers. So here in the law, if a family had to sell their land to pay off debt or because of some other hardship, a redeemer uh, was a close family relative that had means... They were tasked by God to purchase the land from the creditor and restore it to the, the original owner so that the clan's inheritance stayed intact. Think about that. Isn't that amazing? And, and if the reason the land was sold was because the man who owned the land had died without an heir, then get this. You're, I mean, you may be familiar. I don't want to assume, though. The redeemer then was commanded by God to marry the widow and produce an heir for his brother so that the land could remain in his name and among his relatives. Now, now these were disadvantages to the Redeemer, right? I mean, you can see that. He had to use his own wealth to buy back the land and then turn around and give it as a gift to the family. If he married the widow, they had a son, then the boy would legally be, con- be considered the son of the deceased man and not his own son. And so the inheritance you know, would, would pass away from his family to this. To this. It was really stunning. I mean, it's absolutely stunning the kinds of things that God calls his people to. And so there's, there's very little for the Redeemer to gain. And there was great risk. And later in the story, in fact, in chapter 4, we see that there was a Redeemer who was actually closer to Naomi and Ruth than Boaz. But he is unwilling to do this. He's unwilling to play the part of Redeemer because the cost is too great, but not for Boaz. He is a, he's a godly man. We're going to see more about that. But I'm, what I want you to see is this. Notice that God does not blush from calling us to this kind of generosity and sacrifice towards one another. Isn't that amazing? 
Christianity is hard. It's lonely because when you're a Christian, you act in a way that no one else does. And so God says you need one another, that we have no choice but to need one another. But he also calls us to act this way because he himself is a redeemer. Like Boaz, in small measure, in Jesus, God has brought us back from the slavery of our sin and our slavery to death. And he's restored to us our inheritance. And the new command that he gives to you and I goes even beyond the demands of the law that Boaz is enacting here. It is to love one another as Christ has loved us. Now, how has Jesus loved you? And that is now the mandate for the way that we are to love one another. So we see there's directions, very specific, very strong directions from the Lord about the kind of community that we should be. And we, we will, to a certain degree, under the weight of that, we should. If not, then we don't really understand the implications because they're huge. But secondly, then, then what's the source? Where does, the, where does um, all of the energy and the, and the, and the you know, the momentum for, for loving this way and becoming a community like this come from. And as God's people, we are to be a community of love because God himself is a community of love. That's part of what the teaching is here as well. In the text, you'll notice that when one of the characters does chesed love, it's always connected back to God. I mean, the best example probably is, again, at the end of the passage, if you go there, when Ruth came home after working all day in Boaz's field, she reported all that had happened to her mother-in-law. Now pay attention to Naomi's response. This is verse 20. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, that's the word hesed there, by the way, whose hesed has not forsaken the living or the dead. And then all the commentators say, if you look at that verse, the question is, whose kindness is she talking about there? Is it Boaz's kindness that she's so excited about, or is it the Lord's kindness? Is it, you know, which is it? Who's the who's there, see? And I think the text is intentionally ambiguous to make a point. Uh, the, the, the point of the text is that Boaz's kindness is the Lord's kindness to Ruth and Naomi. The two are the same. So Boaz might be the instrument of, of, God, of, of the kindness, but, but God is the source. It all starts with him. So Boaz's kindness turns Naomi's heart to the Lord, you notice. It melts her heart. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me, she said in 120. She's, she's singing something completely different. She's singing a totally different song now, isn't she? The Lord has dealt bitterly with me, she said there. Now it's the Lord's kindness has not forsaken me. And what's the difference? The difference is one man acting kindly toward, it, it, totally, his kindness totally revolutionizes her whole life. And the lesson is that we come to know God's love and the love we show to one another. Now let's make a theological point here, if you don't mind. And I want you to see that the characters in the story do hesed because God does hesed. Okay, they do hesed because they know he does hesed. However, uh, and this is really important. Don't miss this, okay? It's going to sound not that big of a deal, but it's a really big deal. God doesn't just do hesed. He is hesed. Let me say that again. God doesn't just do hesed. He is hesed because he's Trinity. Christians believe in a Trinity. We believe not in a solitary God. We believe in one God, three persons, a community of love. And that means, the, the, the reason that's such an important doctrine in our faith is it means that love is not just something God does Love is what he is. His very nature is self-giving love. And that means that at our very best, we go in and out of hesed. We go in it for a little while, you know, and things are going well, but it wears us out eventually. Our selfishness or just exhaustion gets the best of us, and then we kind of, you know, we, we give up and we can't do it anymore. But God doesn't go in and out of hesed. God can't not love. See, are you excited about that? You should be excited about that. 
Because that means that he loves you in a way that nobody else in your life does. He can't not love. Everything he does is hesed because he is hesed. So love is not just an action for him. It is not just part of his character. It's a part of his being. That's an amazing thing. And so all of the kindness and love that we show to one another traces back to him. But it also means that faith in the triune God of love energizes love. Boaz um, commended Ruth's love of Naomi. Verse 11, all that you have done for your mother-in-law has been fully told to me. He, He was impressed with the way that she loved Naomi. But here's the thing. He was most impressed with her faith. And the two are always connected. So verse 11 there is a description of Ruth's love. Then in verse 12, he explains the source of the love. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Where does Ruth's love come from? How is she able to do all of these amazing things we've been watching her do for her mother-in-law? Boaz says she's taken refuge under God's wings. She, She had come to trust in his love and care for her. And so the image there is the image of a mother bird who, when danger approaches, gathers her young chicks under her wings to protect them from danger. There are even cases where fires happen at farms and they find the charred remains of mother hens and then they open up the mother hens and the little babies are still alive on the inside because she sheltered them from from the fire. Ruth was able to love so selflessly with no thought for taking care of herself because she was confident that God would always take care of her. She could love because she was already loved by God. It It didn't matter if Naomi returned love to her. God loved her, and that was way better. It didn't matter if anybody else, we saw it last week, it didn't matter if anybody saw what she was doing and said thank you because she knew that God saw. So the lesson for us is that faith empowers love, that love requires faith, that the source for our love for others is the love that exists within God himself between the persons of the Trinity. And the purpose of Jesus' work to save us was to bring us into this eternal community of love. His high priestly prayer in John 17, just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, that we might be in them. That's his prayer. Think about that. That if your faith is in Jesus, then you are in him. He brings you into the love that exists between he and the Father. Now the love the Father has eternally for the Son is no longer confined to the Father and the Son. It is now shared with all of those who are in the Son too. (laughs) Our sins have separated us from God, but Jesus died on the cross for our sins to reconcile us to the Father. And it is the experience of sharing in the love between the persons of the Trinity that is the source for our love for one another. And that's why, listen, that's why there's absolutely no room for pettiness in Christianity. There's there's no place for holding grudges or withholding forgiveness because because of what Jesus really has done for us. The church is the visible expression on the earth of the inner life of the Trinity. Like, that's all I know to do with that. Right? People are supposed to look at us and say, that's what God's like. In himself, between the Father and the Son. And that's why Jesus' last prayer on the earth was for us, listen to this, that they may be perfectly 
one, so that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them even as you love me. God the Father loves you even as he loves the Son because of the work of the Son. That's like an atomic bomb exploding in your life. So third then, the example. So if that's the source, then we see thirdly the example. Well, how do you do this then? How do you create a community like this? And Boaz really shows us the way. He shows us how. He understood how vulnerable Ruth is. He understood what a big job loving her was going to be. It was going to take the whole community. This is what Boaz knows instinctively because you see it here. And so we should stop and reflect on what a mess we all are and what it really takes to love us. You ready to do that for a minute? The Bible describes our work with one another as building. We build one another. We come into one another's lives having been broken into a thousand little pieces by life. And our work is to, is to work to put one another back together again through kindness and support and confrontation and so forth. But here's what I need. I don't want you to imagine yourself as a little five-piece puzzle you give a toddler for them to work on for like two minutes. You are a thousand-piece puzzle. Okay? And the thing about a thousand-piece puzzle is you don't just sit down on a lazy afternoon and put the thousand-piece puzzle together. It's a job. Like you go on vacation for two weeks, and at the beginning of the two weeks you say, this is, gonna, this is our mission. We're going to put this thing together. You call the whole family together. You work on it together. We are like a thousand-piece puzzle that needs to be put back together. It's going to take more than just you and me. It's going to take all of us. And so one aspect of our loving people well is to avoid a Messiah complex. You love best when you realize you can't do all the loving, that you have to spread it around. And, and can I just make a confession? This is hard for pastors because it's the job of a pastor to make sure the people in the church are being properly cared for. It's not the job of the pastor to do all the caring for. I didn't expect that to get an amen. <laughs> and the problem is that pastors are the kind of people who like to care for people. And the people like to be cared for by their pastor. Because we all want the attention of the people at the top of the organizational flowchart, don't we? It makes us feel important. But it's actually unloving for me or for any pastor to try to do all the loving of the people in the church. It's actually arrogant. And it's being, uh, really, it's being more concerned that the, people you that the people love you for loving them than it is making sure they're being loved and cared for well. So part of loving well is being realistic about your bandwidth. Can I say that again? Part of being a great lover of people is being realistic about your bandwidth. And knowing that love is a community project. And so the solution to Ruth's vulnerability is not just Boaz. It's going to take even more than him. The solution to her vulnerability is community. And that's generally true of cycles of poverty and physical brokenness. At the core of poverty and other vulnerabilities are broken relationships. So Boaz made up his mind to use his power and his influence. We're told in, in the very beginning of the chapter that he's a powerful man. He's a wealthy man. And he... He uses his power and his wealth and his influence to help Ruth. He was moved to do hesed for her by watching, by, by watching her do hesed for Naomi. But his strategy here is what's so important. And his strategy is just this. He moves to bring Ruth into the community. So look at this. Let's look at this together because it's, it's really, really helpful. First, in verses 11 and 12, he pronounces his blessing on her. And the power of that's lost on us. But a blessing is more than just an encouraging word. It's, it's something... It's, it's a recognition of the way that God is working and then calling people into the work that God is already starting on their behalf. Second, he, he moves to, he protected her physically. You notice verse 9, he, issues, he issued an order. 
that the young men were to leave her alone. There was a real danger that they might try to sexually harass her because there literally was no one to stand, there literally was no one to stand up for her. She had no one to make sure she was not taken, taken advantage of. And so he commands, he issues an order that the young men were to leave her alone. Third, he provided for her relationally. He greased the wheels for her by commanding the women to include her. First, verse 8, stay close to my young women, he says. Now, all this, is, all this is being done publicly. It's a public announcement. So the danger with the women was prejudice or jealousy. I mean, they were deeply prejudiced against Moabites, and so the women would most naturally exclude Ruth. They would probably try to shame her and marginalize her, and that would put her in greater danger. And so Boaz commands them to include her. Even, even more than that, it's verse, 20, verse 16, it's really, it's really sh- shocking. He instructed them to pull out grain from the bundles and leave it for her. He's he wanting them to make her work even easier for her. And that was the work the women did, by the way. They came behind the men and they bundled up the barley after it had been cut. And so he's commanding their generosity toward her and in order to forbid any rivalry or exclusion. So here's what he does. He pushes the men away from her. He pulls the women towards her. Because it's what she needed. He wanted, he wanted all of them to enter into his welcome of her. And then lastly, and most dramatically, at the noon meal, he publicly invited Ruth to his table. Come sit here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so Ruth sat beside the reapers, and he, pa- he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied. So he's using his power and influence to welcome Ruth and create a community of love for her to live in. Think, think of the scene as a high school lunchroom, it's the quarterback of the football team inviting a complete nobody to sit at the cool kids' table. I mean, what does that do for that kid relationally? And that's what Boaz is doing. It's interesting, in the Gospels, Jesus' love, much like Boaz, has created a community of love. In Luke 5, for example, Jesus healed a man who was full of leprosy. He touched him. That's significant. He didn't have to. He could have spoken a word. But he touched him because he knew the man's real need. He stretched out his hand because the real sadness of the man's life was not the leprosy, but that the disease had made him an outcast. And then once he's healed him, Jesus instructed him to go show himself to the priest so that he could be admitted back into the congregation because Jesus knew the man needed more than physical healing. He needed the community. And so if you look over and over again as Jesus heals people in the Gospels, he heals them physically, but every physical healing also comes with the restoration of community to people too. Jesus ensured that people were restored, that, that their relationships were healed as well as their bodies because he knew how desperately we needed this. So then, so lastly, what does all this mean for us? Uh, how, do we, how do we do this? You know, this is a big work. It's a little overwhelming. So what's the starting place? Most of us would say, I want this, but I don't, I don't have it. How do you get it? Where do you begin? And so just, just a couple of implications from the text as we finish up this morning. And I really have two. And the very first thing is just this. The very first thing and the very first hurdle to really experiencing this for yourself and, and making it true for other people is you have to stop thinking of yourself as an outsider. You have to stop thinking of yourself as an outsider. Stop believing that everybody else has these kinds of relationships and only you are lonely. That all of those people seem to have this with one another and I don't. Because the truth is that, the, that only a few people experience the kind of community that we've been describing. Or there may be times in your life where you've had it 
and then times when you don't. And most people, most people, most people in this room feel marginalized and friendless, just like you. I'm, I'm the pastor of the church, okay? I, I couldn't be more, I'm the ultimate insider at Redeemer. And a lot of the time I feel like an outsider. I feel just as alone and friendless as all of you, as all of you do. It's the nature of our sin to alienate us from one another and to cause us to feel this way. So even in the church, as great as our church, and, we, and you're a great church, and you do this well, but we can still feel this way. It's part of life in a broken world. But see, but when I feel that way, I have to remind myself I'm not an outsider. I have to stop feeling sorry for myself. That just sends me deeper into myself and away from others. And I have to remember that if I'm in Christ Jesus, I'm never an outsider. I know that sounds annoyingly cliched. Let me explain. C.S. Lewis said that, we, that at present we feel that we are on the outside of the world, on the wrong side of the door. And the picture I always imagine is Ebenezer Scrooge standing outside in the cold and the snow, peering in the window, the glowing firelight and friendship of Christmas past and present. And a lot of us feel like that's our life, you know. We want to get in, but we can't. But the Bible says we feel this way because we've been exiled, that there is a door we're on the wrong side of, and we can't get back in. But what's laying on the other side of the door is not the friendship that will finally make us whole or the experience that will fill up the emptiness inside. It's no earthly thing. We long to get inside of God himself. And if your faith is in Jesus, Jesus has brought you in. You're not an outsider. You may be an outsider in this church, but you're, not, you're an insider with the triune God of the universe. You're never an outsider. So you have to stop thinking of yourself that way. And then secondly, you have to start with love. You just have to start with love. I can't tell you how often I'm with people who are dissatisfied with their circle of friends. They, they, you know, they can't break in. So they come to me for help. And what they're normally wanting me to do is to help them look for a new community of people to belong to. But that's the problem, you see. You don't find community. Let me say that again. You don't find community. It doesn't exist out there somewhere just waiting for you to come along. Right? The enemy of community is discontent. And the answer to the problem is almost never somewhere else. It's always to reimagine the place where you're already standing as holy ground. You don't find community, you create it through love. So most people, ironically, never experience the kind of community we've been talking about this morning because they make an idol out of it. Community becomes more important than love. Being loved becomes more important than loving. And so they take the temperature on how well other people are doing towards them, and then they make an evaluation at how well the community is doing. But if you're looking for some place to be loved... Let me just go ahead and tell you what your life's going to be like. If that's the goal, you're looking for someone to love, you're looking for some place to be loved, then you're going to move from place to place and always be disappointed. But if you start with love, if you just start with love wherever you are, then everywhere you go, you will create community. Instead of pursuing it, we should pursue love because love always comes first. Find a community of people who really enjoy one another. Find a community of people that are doing hesed to one another. And at the center of it, I will show you a person or two or three who just started with love. And through their love, they created a community of love. And so if you approach friendship as a consumer, you're going to ruin friendship. If you approach marriage as a consumer, what am I getting versus what am I giving? You know, I'm going to always be evaluating that way. Then you're going to ruin marriage. If you approach church as a consumer, you ruin church. I'm, I'm having to repent of this. I really am. I told Ashley yesterday, I'm worrying about whether the preaching is good enough or do we have enough activity for kids? Do people like the church? You know, I, I'm repenting of worrying about whether my kids like coming to church because it means I think what they need most is a place that meets their needs rather than a place where they can 
love and sacrifice for others. The church is the place where you give, it's not where you get. And you need a place to give more than you need a place to get. I really believe that. And so let me finish by drawing our attention again to Boaz's blessing of Ruth in verse 12. And just, and just close. The Lord repay you, he says, for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz believed that God repays Hesed with Hesed. The Apostle Paul said it this way, whatever one sows, that he reaps. And Paul Miller wrote this, Life is not lived in isolated moments, but in trajectories of reaping and sowing. Everything we do creates the person we are becoming and the life we will have in the future. We do not live in an impersonal, rigid world in which obedience mechanically dispenses reward. However, grace hasn't changed the moral shape of things. Ruth's love, <laughs> I love this, Ruth's love is a weight on God's heart that has accumulated a divine debt so large that only God can repay it. To us, this passage would say, make yourself a debtor to everyone. The Apostle Paul said, I am free, but I make myself a slave to all. Make yourself a debtor to everyone because God in Christ Jesus will never allow himself to be indebted to you. Listen to Hebrews 6.10. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. That's the promise he makes to all of us as we try to do this great work of community building in love. Let's pray. Would you pray with me? So, Father, this is, this is what is before us as we live in this crazy world where people are so alone and scared and always fretting about and worrying about um, and they feel vulnerable and isolated and longing for belonging and community. You've given us very simple instructions to move towards one another in love. And so we do thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the way that you love one another. And we do pray and thank you that you in, in Jesus Christ have brought us into the very love that you have for one another, that we may experience it and be a part of it. And then you send us into the world as little copies, little reduplications of the Trinity uh, that we might show the world in which we've been called the love that you have for one another. And so help us in that great work. Forgive us our self-pity and our only thinking of ourselves. Humble us. Make us mindful of others and then give us all the energy we need to go and love well so that you might be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now receive the words of the benediction as you go. Uh, seniors, we are sending you. We recognized you, but really what we're doing is sending you. And as you, as you go, remember the words of Jesus that as he sends us into the world, he promises to go with us and be with us to the end of the age. That all of the power and the friendship and the resources of God the Trinity is at your disposal if your faith is in the Lord Jesus. Uh, so receive these words and go full of courage. Go in love. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.